0: Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, journalist turned financial health champion. As founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network, I've spent my career connecting forward thinking leaders to the growing FinHealth movement. Now I'm sharing these conversations with you. Discover how these visionaries are challenging the status quo and improving financial health for their customers, employees, and communities. My guest today has spent nearly three decades at the intersection of education and work. As CEO of Jobs for the Future, Maria Flynn is working to align these systems in a way that benefits both workers and employers in an ever-changing economy. She's a master convener and knows the power of bringing together competing interests to create dynamic and sustainable solutions that work. Welcome to Emerge Everywhere, Maria. Thank you so much, Jennifer. It's great to be here. Um, And here being, you're in Boston, I think, today in your office. Yes, I am. I am. So as I understand it, um, the organization you run, uh, JFF, or Jobs for the Future, was founded back in 1983 because the co-founders were motivated by uh, workers who were losing their jobs to automation. That sounds awfully familiar. Have we always been afraid of the technology eating our jobs only to find that like jobs keep evolving or is something really different now 40 years later?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think a lot of things are the same and then I think some things are different, right? So as you said, we were founded almost 40 years ago, which is kind of hard to believe in a lot of ways. And at that time, our co-founders, Hillary Pennington and Arthur White, they really just saw this, Gap in the field where they felt that, particularly at the state level, not enough was being done to help workers prepare for changes in automation, how to help workers who are losing their job because of those shifts. And so we really started out working with a couple of states like Connecticut, um, Arkansas, back when Bill Clinton was governor of Arkansas to really help leverage research to forecast what the jobs of the future were going to be, to help people develop the skills that they were going to need to take those jobs, and then to reimagine, like, what should the workforce and education system really look like in the U.S., right? So here we are, um, almost 40 years later, uh, still at it. I think to think about just how different things were in 1983 in terms of, you know, where we were, you know, without internet, without our iPhones, right? <laughs> um, uh, with, um, without kind of the real-time labor market information providers we have uh, today trying to do this. And then here we are now, probably in a more critical time than we've ever seen, right? Where the, the issues of education and work, to me, are just at such the forefront across all the issues that we're dealing with in the U.S., whether that be um, structural racism, whether that be the political divides that we're feeling. Um, To me, it all comes back to these core issues. And so at JFF, we sit in this kind of unique position between education and workforce and policy and practice. And I like to think that back in the 80s that Arthur and Hillary were really ahead of their time. And I like to think that, JF we, we always work to, to kind of keep ahead of the field and to be skating where the puck is headed, so to speak. Um, so that's, you know, that's where we are. I think that the debate around the future of work is still critically important. I feel that in a lot of ways it is too much a debate and not enough action. Uh, but we can dive into that some more.
0: Yeah you know as you said the changing nature of work was a hot topic even before covid 18 months ago and you know between the pandemic and the racial reckoning that's ongoing um the rise of this idea of stakeholder capitalism and just the staggering staggering amount of student debt in this country the role of work and education are you know at the center of the of the discussion i agree completely so as your organization works towards its mission of access to economic advancement for all. What are the biggest obstacles to achieving it? Like, how do you even know where to start?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It is a, it's a very complex issue. Um, I think how the organization has evolved, you know, since our founding is that we, over the decades, we continue to add, you know, kind of additional levers that we're pulling, right? In advance of our mission, right? And to really try to drive the conversation, to drive impact, to drive outcomes. And I think it's important to like think through how there are both kind of supply side levers and there are demand side levers that have to be pulled. And uh, what I love about JFF is that we are able to play a role across those. And so first and foremost, I think on the If you think about the student or the worker, I like to think about how do you help people find their path, how do you help them finance that path, and how do you help them flourish like in that career that they choose? And I think where we are as a nation is that there are pretty huge obstacles in each of those three buckets. So I think in terms of you know finding, you know, whether you're looking at a College, or you're looking for your next job, or you're looking for an apprenticeship, it is hard for individuals, for families, even for community based organizations to really have a clear navigation system to help them figure out what are the best options for me. So, I think really trying to tackle that question of navigation, accessible data, um, actionable data is, is really at the forefront of our strategy right now. Also around finance, you mentioned student debt, Um, you know, interest, very interesting, important conversations happening in D.C. right now around free college, around doubling Pell and so forth. But that's not the whole, you know issue, right? There's more that needs to be done. Um, A lot of those conversations, in my opinion, are very disconnected conversations around traditional higher ed financing is really disconnected from discussions of workforce training. So we need to keep pushing kind of this conversation and bringing, you know, kind of back the reality of like, what is this really looking like for individuals, particularly for people of color? And then this idea of flourishing in your career, um, thinking about what supports are needed, you know, at the workplace, how to think about, you know, the, how the various public funding streams kind of come together or not <laughs> to help a person advance, and so just an enormous amount of work to do, kind of in those buckets. And then on the employer side, uh, while I think. The good news is that we have seen a lot of promising kind of corporate practices over the past uh, few years. There is still a lot that can be done both to really transform hiring practices, to be thinking through um, what are alternatives to the four-year degree as a, a critical hiring signal, to be thinking through how more diverse pipelines of talent are developed and what partnerships need to be put in place for that so that's just like a you know some of the current top of mind issues that we're looking at but as you said it's it's very complex it requires the input of multiple stakeholder groups right and kind of across this complex learning to work ecosystem Um, And I know that's how our organizations kind of are similar in that way, where we think a lot about the interconnectivity and the importance of of bringing people together um, in new and different ways.
0: Totally. Um, And I was thinking that as you were describing this find finance and flourish, I just love that, um, both because I like alliteration, but it's a a very helpful uh, categorization of the issues um, and thinking about it both from the demand and the supply side. Um, And of course, I think a lot about um, the flourish part of it Uh, and that too often we think about flourishing in a job or flourishing um, as a student um, in a pretty narrow way when we recognize that we live in a complex world and people's lives are complex and that uh, there is so much that intersects and that can drive that great thing you think you're doing over here around helping someone flourish in their job uh, is totally derailed by an illness in their family or you know some financial challenge that they're having, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I really like the idea of bringing folks together. And I'm I'm curious, you mentioned employers, mm-hmm. and I think your work with employers is- maybe newer as a strategy for the organization. And and I've heard you talk about impact employers. Yes. Um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about um, why JFF started working more with the supply side, if you will, and uh, what does it mean to be an impact employer in your mind?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So while I would say throughout our history, we have always kind of worked on both sides of the supply-demand coin. About three years ago, we believed that we needed to take more intentional steps to work directly with corporate players and that there was an important role that JFF as a mission-driven nonprofit could play in helping to shape the conversation to help to promote more equitable strategies and so forth. And so um, we launched the corporate action platform about three years ago with some initial funding by uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. And we have used that. It's primarily targeted to Fortune 500 companies. Um, and the framework that we use uh, for that work is our impact employer framework. So it is really this Belief that an impact employer is implementing strategies that inherently put the worker at the center, and balancing that with you know positive business outcomes. Uh, but it's thinking through uh, kind of those like traditional pieces like hiring and retention and advancement, but also looks at issues like total rewards. It looks at issues such as ethical offboarding when that becomes a factor, and really helping employers learn from each other around what are the very practical action steps that they can take towards really becoming a true impact employer. So that work is partially um, convening and peer learning collaborations and other sets of activities with employers. And then we also have a corporate advising practice where companies are hiring us directly to help them design or scale new interventions and one um, announcement from this week was some coverage of a program that we designed for sap Mm -hmm. that was bringing in virtual reality uh, based training for some young people so really starting with a pilot of about 50 young people Using virtual reality technology to help them dig into curriculum around leading through adversity, around how to have challenging conversations, and to be able to really use this technology to create a safe space for that training to happen. So, I think it's a good example of kind of this role that JFF plays, where the corporation is our client. We're helping them to design really kind of um, human centered interventions that increasingly can leverage this new and emerging technology, which to me is gonna really be the the key as these programs move forward, is how do we start to bring these pieces together?
0: Well, that's a great segue to something else that um, you've uh, brought to bear recently um, under your watch at JFF, which is this new um, JFF Labs. So it sounds like you think technology has a real role to play in the issues that we've been talking about I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you're thinking about that and some of the investments that you've made. You know, I, I think it's a it's a particularly interesting time to talk about this. You know, both of our organizations are involved with supporting and seeding innovators, technology innovators, but we also live in a time where, rightly so, technology and technology companies are under tremendous scrutiny about their practices. Um, I've always been very clear that... Um, Uh, technology isn't the answer to life's problems. Uh, It's a tool, but I'm curious to know how you are thinking about that in this moment.
1: I agree. So this has really been um, really the top priority for me since I became CEO at JFF just about five years ago. It was really this realization that there were siloed things happening in the field. You had The what I would call the traditional players, which is where JFF, you know, for decades had really focused its work, that were, you know, moving along a path of transformation and innovation at a certain pace. And in that category, you know, I would place community colleges, workforce boards, community organizations, and so on. But then, you know, you have this other silo of activity around tech entrepreneurs, investors, um, corporations, you know, that were, testing out their own, you know, tools and theories of change and so forth. And I really felt like that in the education workforce field, these folks were not talking to each other and that you had, you know, even kind of an embedded distrust of each other. So, and I found this, you know, even, you know, within our own organization that, um, and I say this of myself as someone who really you know, has spent their career kind of more on the traditional side of the house, you know, working uh, for the federal government. But, you know, I think there was this inherent kind of distrust of anything that seemed to be um, for profit. There was like a a distrust that, um, you know, if you moved away from the traditional system that you risk kind of like losing it all. And then I felt like on the other side of the house, like on the um, technology side, I think a lot of times you would see, you know, entrepreneurs who kind of felt they had a silver bullet solution, but didn't really quite have the full understanding of the underlying systems that they were trying to change. And so at JFF, we have really been on this crusade now for about five years to build a bridge between these um, players and these conversations and these investments. And JFF Labs is really our primary vehicle for for doing that. And so within that team, which is led by Christina Francis, our executive director of Labs, is, you know, work with mission-aligned startups. And so, you know, we really lead with that. I think to your point, like we are going to work with entrepreneurs and companies that share our beliefs and that, at the end of the day, are working to drive positive impact for underrepresented populations. Um, we have brought in about two years ago, ETF at JFF Labs, which is an early stage impact investing fund. So again, kind of giving us that additional lever to pull where now we can actually make equity investments in companies that we really believe in. Um, and then we can be helping kind of our traditional networks of colleges and organizations learn more about these new players. We can run demos to kind of test things out within the traditional systems. We can be building evidence around that. Um, And hopefully, you know, ultimately really changing the conversation and changing how kind of both sides are relating to each other. So to me, this all comes down to, you know, trust, understanding, putting mission and equity kind of at the center of all the work. But to me, that's how we're going to achieve real results is this embracing of both the old and the new, so to speak, um, and to really help take the best of both worlds and, and move forward.
0: So can you give an example or two of some of the companies that you've made investments in?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we... We invest, again, kind of at this like intersection of education and workforce, particularly around solutions that are designed to help individuals advance in their careers, uh, including kind of the support services that are needed for that. So one is Equity, which is has been a really exciting company to watch um, over the past year and a half, where they help provide emergency aid, um, particularly through community college systems for to students. Um, we... Um, are an investor in CellEd, which is a digital solution really geared to help frontline workers enhance their skills. So really designed around micro courses and, and content and very easily accessible. Climb credit is another, which is really related to that finance uh, bucket I was mentioning before. So continuing to look at innovative financing strategies. Um, they're a great example of that, um, which is also kind of tied to our financing the future effort. But there are a lot of great examples out there, new technology approaches to work-based learning opportunities to project-based learning, um, different you know job boards designed for different kind of segments of the market. So it's a it's a it's a hot market right now, lots of sure lots is. of innovation happening um, and it's, it's great to be able to kind of have this, you know, kind of small role that we can play in the market to really invest where we see, you know, great bets being uh, made.
0: Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. We have a similar strategy, as you know, and, you know, we share a couple of portfolio companies. We're we're also investors in um, equity and uh, and climb credit. So um, it's good to be in your company. You know, you mentioned your long career in government prior to coming to JFF. And I want to get to that in a minute, but you also earlier talked about all of the policy activity going on around a whole range of issues, leaving aside sort of college and free college student debt for just a moment. As you think about what's happening in Washington, and in some cases at the state level, where do you see the most opportunity or the most Need to take action. Right? Where can federal dollars or federal mm. direction, yeah. federal requirements, make the biggest difference here? Is it is it around what employers can and can't do as it relates to their employees, or is it more on the systems and market side of the equation?
1: I say it's on the system side of the equation, and I think I'm. I have two major kind of points of view on this one is near term, right? So, um, with the reconciliation bill that is being negotiated now,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, we're looking at a hopefully pretty significant investment in workforce development, really at un- unprecedented levels, which is really exciting in a number of ways. And is something that JFF has been really strongly advocating for, um, even though the House and Senate are are at very different levels, even if you went with the lowest numbers, it's still a a huge increase to the status quo. And so I completely like support and understand the need for us to get dollars into the field now, right, to help with the upskilling that's needed to be able to ensure that the infrastructure investment is actually going to be able to Um, happen, right, with the skilled workers that they need. Um, So very much believe in that. I would say the but is, I also feel that there needs to be um, very soon a more robust conversation around what do we really want this workforce system to look like in the United States? And, you know, we are operating in a system that, you know, is you, you know, tie it back to the New Deal in many ways. Even the Workforce Investment Act, which I worked closely on, that was enacted in 1998, which really kind of the set the framework for the programs that are existing now. You know, it was developed at a time when we didn't know what technology was going to <laughs> to bring us. Um, you know, it's a system that was very much designed around the idea of brick and mortar buildings. Um, very um, complicated requirements, a very decentralized system. And I really feel that too often in D.C., uh, because of things like power and politics and all that stuff, that folks aren't asking the really hard questions, right? So right now, today in D.C., the, the question is, you know, how much? And I think the question... Once we get a little past, you know, kind of this time of emergency, the question needs to be more around the what. What's the design? How do we create a more worker-centered lifelong learning system? How do we rethink a lot of these almost assumptions that we have of the way that we think the system has to operate and and work? And I feel that's, that's where the conversation, I think, needs to shift to very soon.
0: Give an example of some of an assumption or two that we really need to question.
1: Yeah, so I don't want to pick on the workforce board system because that's where I've spent most of my career working around them. But, you know, I do feel we have this framework that has, you know, almost 600 local workforce investment boards around the country. Uh, my home state in New Jersey, for example, has. 21 counties, and I believe they still have probably 17 or 18 workforce boards, which means that each of those boards uh, directs their own funding, has their own executive director, probably has slightly different rules and regulations. And, and it's- tell
0: the listeners, wh- what do these workforce boards do, actually?
1: So the uh, they largely administer the federal job training Dollars is the kind of the best way to think about it. And they are comprised of uh, members of the leaders of the community from the private sector, from organized labor, from training providers, and others. But I think, you know, where I feel the conversation kind of gets lost is, um, you know, the labor market has changed, right? It's like, Yes, at the end of the day, it all comes down to community and regional economies for sure. But I feel like in that one example of this federal system that administers, you know, billions of dollars a year, it is locked into a very bureaucratic way of operating, you know, in that case to use New Jersey, a very like county by county way of operating. And I think that. And no one really wants to have that conversation of, you know, is this the right way to administer this system? Like, is there a more modern way of doing this that kind of doesn't come down to these local boards? Um, and it's a conversation that folks don't want to have, right? Because it, um, it gets... the losers. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that's a pretty, you know, like, you know, kind of narrow bureaucratic example, but one that I feel um, is a great example of the conversations that aren't having, that, that aren't happening like in D.C., that aren't happening um, in the federal agencies. And as a result, you know, I think, you know, dollars aren't being used as efficiently as they could. And it's a system that is kind of centered around the system versus a system that is centered around the worker.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you cut your teeth in workforce back in the 90s at the Department of Labor, and you were there quite a while under three different presidents, um, Bush one, Clinton and uh, Bush two. How did you get into these issues in the first place? What drew you to this arena? And why did you start out in government?
1: So I, you know, as long as I can remember, I have just been driven by this Notion and the importance of economic advancement and economic opportunity, and I think that is largely because I literally grew up around it. So I, you know, I grew up in New Jersey. Um, as I, when I was growing up, my father worked in workforce development almost his whole career. He worked for um, two governors. He worked for Christy Whitman and Tom Kane uh, in New Jersey in the New Jersey Department of Labor. Uh, meanwhile, my mother, who Uh, went back into the workforce when I was, I think, in fourth grade or so, took a job at our local, um, what we then called, you know, our vocational education high school or career tech ed high school. Um, And I used to go to work with her in the morning, every morning until my school started. So I had, you know, a real like very like hands-on view of, you know, career and technical education that was just like, a big part of my life. Um, and then I also had uh, an aunt who was very involved in um, organized labor uh, in New Jersey, particularly in the manufacturing sector. And so those were like the three major influences in my life. And, you know, looking back on it, I think it taught me a few things. You know, one, this importance of being able to look at these issues from different vantage points, right? And Um, particularly seeing some of the, you know, political debates that would happen, right? And back then, again, in the 80s and 90s, you know, seeing play out like in real time, you had a uh, Republican governor who was trying to like get measures through and the importance of bringing organized labor, you know, along with those ideas was just, you know, something that was very apparent to me and how this idea of, the importance of bringing stakeholders together, of having common goals, I think is something that has really shaped like how I think about the work. Uh, So as I joined the U.S. Department of Labor right out of school. I loved my time there. I had incredible opportunities uh, uh, under each administration, uh, things that very much, uh, you know, I think, drive a lot of my work uh, at JFF. So, uh, again, kind of these connections between education and workforce, uh, the importance of federal agencies working together um, on initiatives, the importance of driving innovation, but ultimately decided to leave because I felt that that last part of driving innovation was hard to do from within the federal government like even in the most kind of positive political climates it's it's hard to do and so that is what took me to to jff in 2007
0: at which you've learned it's also hard to drive innovation. Yes, exactly. <laughs> in the private sector exactly. or out in the world exactly um, it's just hard um i can totally understand your uh <laughs> your 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 quest for where can i do the most yeah. good yeah and um, you know every place sort of has its pros and its cons, I guess I think we both are old enough now to have the perspective uh, on that, and clearly, your time in government is uh, such a critical part of the way in which you're able to operate and recognize that it isn't any one of these entities, it's all of them Absolutely. working together. Yep. um you know, I want to talk about something because you just you just raised it. um I want to talk about worker voice. Mm-hmm. Worker voice This is this hot yeah. phrase at the moment, as if we've never thought to talk to workers before. But I like very much the idea that there's this recognition that we need to center workers.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: we need to make sure we're hearing them. It, what made me think about it is you talking about the unions. Yep. When you think about worker voice and how that plays out in your work today and the others that you're working with, Make it a little more tangible. What does that mean? What should people be doing? How, what, what are the right ways to engage workers in uh, these policy discussions and frankly in these programmatic discussions? Talk a little bit more about that.
1: Sure. So I think on the public sector side, I do believe you know we need to be looking at how to get the voice of the customer um, more at the you know, decision-making table or in those design conversations. And I feel that, you know, over the years, different things have been tried around, well, you have to have, you know, this type of representative sitting on this council or this board. I think in the past, a lot of that has been pro forma, unfortunately, right? So I think really stepping back and designing, you know, from the start, like, how do we Um, have real human-centered design approaches and conversations from the beginning uh, is just critically important. I know um, during the Obama administration, there was some work done in that area, like through the Department of Labor. Uh, I'd like to see more of that happening. So I think you need to have incentives, right? To kind of help the bureaucracies move in that direction. I think you also need to the federal government needs to be able to be okay in providing some additional flexibility, right? Where I think that that just does not exist now. When it comes down to really technical things like cost allocation and that those types of requirements um, on the private sector side, uh, I think that you know uh, you and I are both uh, also employers, right? <laughs> it's part of our roles, and I think we're seeing that like this isn't going to be optional, right? I think workers today, um, expect to have a a voice, expect for their voice to be heard, expect for action to be taken, you know, as a result of that voice. And I think that, you know, regardless of what size uh, your organization is, like you need to start putting structures and processes in place to enable that to happen. So I think that, um, And I don't think that's going to change. I think that's just going to become more and more the reality. And I think, you know, organized labor, of course, is one, you know, kind of structural way to do that. But even, you know, having more informal mechanisms to kind of make worker voice uh, a big part of decision making, of policy development, um, and so on, I think is going to be the way that we move forward.
0: Hmm. So I wanna talk a little bit about the education part of the workforce equation. So it's, it's on my mind because I just dropped my older daughter at college for her freshman year. Uh, and for a long time, the four year degree, college degree is the holy grail. Best path to long-term economic prosperity. People who have a college degree make more money than people who have a high school degree. You know all the standard stuff, but I can tell you the sticker shock I had uh, as a parent, um, and I am you know deeply privileged to be able to manage it. Um, but the majority of Americans cannot. Is the cost of college worth it? Is it still worth it as as we see the labor force changing? And is it the only option? Um, um, and, and how much of the, the issue in this country is cultural mm-hmm. versus sort of technical or operational, if you will?
1: I love this question because my oldest daughter is a year behind yours. So my oldest daughter is a senior in high school. So we are right in the middle of the application process. Um, I'm also you know, acutely feeling my privilege as we go through the process And I have to say that even though I've worked on these issues again, my whole career, it has been really sobering to me, right? To see, you know, you hear about the prices, but until you see the prices um, as a consumer, it's, it is, um, it's really shocking. Um, And again, even though I have kind of conceptually like known this for a long time, like just seeing how, hard and opaque the decision-making process is is also um, stunning uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of the assessments that are taken, the platforms that are used, uh, the information that's available from the colleges. Uh, It is very bureaucratic. It is really structured in a way that I feel you know, underscores elitism. um, And it's deeply troubling. And this summer, as we were doing some college tours, my daughter said to me, Mom, you know, this process is really weird. And I said, yes, honey, this is a really weird and troubling process. Uh, And so I feel that you know, higher ed was ripe for a disruption pre-COVID. I think the past 18 months have sped up uh, that reality. My concern is that, by and large, traditional higher ed is extremely slow to respond. In some cases, I think they might say the right thing, but the actions don't measure up. Um, And I think, like, I would almost take like the real elites, like the Ivies, like out of the conversation, right? Because they're kind of gonna continue to do their thing. But I think when you look at, um, you know, the hundreds (laughs) of other institutions that are out there, how are they really thinking about student success? How are they thinking about labor market outcomes? How are they thinking about, you know, going back to, you know, find finance and flourish, right? How are they... um, thinking about these connections that need to be made and providing students with the agency that's going to be needed to help them, you know, kind of navigate through these pathways. So I think there is, there's just so much to do. I think that you have some of the, you know, what they call mega universities, uh, Southern New Hampshire university, Western governors are doing really innovative, amazing things. Um, You know, there's part of me that, like, thought, you know, maybe my daughter should, like, get an apartment somewhere, get a job and, you know, get a degree at Western Governors, right? But I think to your point around culture, like, we're not kind of all the way there yet as a society, unfortunately. Um, At the same time, like, when you look at the statistics, I believe it's about 68% um, of adults in the U.S. do not have a four-year college degree. Those numbers are higher for black and Latinx adults. So it's almost like as a society, we're living in a um, false reality, right? Where we think like, oh, everyone is going to get these four years degrees and they're going to go off and flourish. And that's just not, you know, the, the numbers just don't support that. Um, and I think to your question, I think there are wonderful alternatives out there, right? Whether that is kind of more structured programs like registered apprenticeship, whether it's a community college pathway, whether it is some of these, um, kind of new type providers that are coming on the market, like Merit America or NPower, others that are getting great outcomes. But it really, to me, comes down to the fact that, um, you know, high school guidance counselors, I, I don't think are equipped to help, you know, navigate these options. I don't think, um, parents are in a position, right? Because it's, it's like a black box that they're trying to, to dig into. And so while I feel that this disruption is imminent, I worry that we don't have enough of the foundational pieces in place to enable that disruption to really be successful and to be successful in an equitable manner. So my younger daughter is uh, in third grade. So I often I spend a lot of time thinking about, like, what do we want this to look like when she's, you know, a high school senior um, exactly. and what needs to happen, you know, in these nine years to actually finally, like once and for all, like have this change. So
0: no, I don't have to... as much time as you because my younger <laughs> is in seventh grade. So hurry, okay, so we up, need to hurry up, We need <laughs> to figure it out. <laughs> Uh, Maria, it is so clear from this conversation that not only do you have deep passion, but um, you are in exactly the right place to be helping all of the various stakeholders sort through um, these challenges. So thank you so much for joining me on Emerge Everywhere. Thank you for having me. This has been great. This has been Emerge Everywhere, a Financial Health Network production. If you like the show, please help spread the financial health message by leaving a review. And if you have ideas for future guests or thoughts on the show, please click on the link in the show notes to connect with us. See you next time.